Today's podcast is brought to you in part by Sarsen Funds and General Provision. Sarsen Funds, real, clear, crypto. Mom got into that scout so bad, he forced him to take me to a tryout camp. It was almost like my mom reduced this scout to a fuller brushman outside of Dubuque, Iowa. It was like, uh, we're really sorry, Mr. Sachs. <laughs> we hadn't seen him that much. We hadn't seen David that much. And she's like, oh, yeah, you've seen him. <laughs> Sacks in the morning. Sports, money, life. Steve Sacks. Welcome to Sacks in the morning. I'm Steve Sacks, and I'm so glad that you've decided to share a little bit of your time with me. This program is really all about success. Success in sports, to be sure, but we'll also talk about success with money and success in life and how all three can really impact your dreams and your passion. My goal is to have you inspired, informed, entertained, and most certainly motivated to follow your emotional heart after every episode. This is our first long-form podcast and really excited about this. We thought it'd be an interesting thing to have the genesis of what's been happening in my career, but you know what? My career wasn't solo. I did my career because I was fortunate to have a brother that I shared my dreams with, was able to compete with and against in growing up. And so we thought it would be pretty fitting to have my brother David here on the first podcast and let you get kind of an idea of how all this crazy stuff started. So I want to introduce my brother, former major leaguer, David Sachs. David, good to be with you. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. This is the nicest my brother's ever been to me. I can't believe he's talking (laughs) like this to me. So anyway, on today's podcast, we want to start at the beginning and share a little bit of what it was like growing up. We grew up on a farm just outside of Sacramento in West Sacramento. And one of the games that we played is because we did grow up on that farm, we had our own water well, and that water well was encompassed with a little shed that we called the pump house. This pump house became very valuable to our both of our careers because it was an, an instantaneous catcher for us. So one would bat, the other would pitch, and if the ball wasn't hit, it would just bounce right back to you. It was an absolute perfect catcher for us. So we invented this game called tennis ball because we would play with a tennis ball and pitch against each other. And that's where we really learned to hit. Coincidentally, a lot of my hits in my big league career and my brother's, when I've seen him, the charts for him, a lot of his hits were up the middle. And we had to to hit the ball at the middle on this little piece of land that we were using on our farm in order to get a fair ball. So it was pretty unique to have this game that we played. And we played this game from about eight years old till the time we were 16. And it was great. David, what'd you think about it? Oh, it was awesome. And you know, we were always pushing each other, you know, playing that game. We knew the lineups is just about every team. So one thing that I, I wish I would have pursued as I kept playing is we would also bat left-handed. Right. If there was a left-handed hitter in the lineup, we would bat left-handed. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I didn't continue to do that as I played through high school. Yeah. But yeah, we learned a lot by playing against that pump house. It's funny you say that because I batted left-handed one time following that notion. I batted left-handed one time when I was in Babe Ruth League at 13 years old. I struck out my first time and banished the idea of trying to, to switch it. That, that was pretty much it for me. But how about some of the fights that we got into? You see, folks, my brother and I were very passionate about what we were doing. Now, the pitcher was the umpire in this tennis ball game, and so he called the balls and strikes. And usually when it was a strike three on the other one, the bat would drop, the mitt would hit the ground, and my brother and I were fighting. How many fights did we get into, do you think? Oh, God, hundreds. Because yes. we used to play that game for hours every day. I mean, especially during the summertime, it was all day every day. If we didn't have a Little League game or a Babe Ruth game, we were out over there playing 
uh, tennis ball. Right. And uh, of course, when I was pitching, I expanded the strike zone. That led to a lot of the a <laughs> yeah. lot of the fights. And you did the same thing when yep. you were pitching. I, I did. And after the fight was over, we picked up the equipment and we started playing again. That was the funny thing about it. We had an opportunity to play like some kids don't. We had an expansive area to play ball out there, and we took advantage of it. Absolutely. We took full advantage of it. And I think you're absolutely right. That really helped us become better hitters. There's no doubt about it. It really did. And you know, the funny thing about it is I talked to other players. I've talked to the Ripkins about this. I've talked to different people about it. And oddly enough is they've played that same game. We didn't know. We thought we were pioneers in this thing. But this thing was pretty much out there throughout America. So it was a funny thing that we found it kind of on our own. Yeah, I mean, saving up three bucks to get a little box of tennis balls was was huge for us because we had a paper yes. route, yep. and we would save up a, a few bucks here and there to get some fluorescent green tennis balls so we could play this game, and it was like the biggest thing to us, right? Yeah, oh yeah. It was pretty crazy. So anyway, growing up after that, we had that dream of you know becoming Major League Baseball players, and on the way there, we had to go through the minor leagues, and I got drafted in the ninth round by the Dodgers. Now, what was very, very perplexing to everybody is my brother in high school pitched 4-1 hitters, and I like to brag about what he did. He just threw the fastball by everybody because he had a great arm, and he wasn't drafted in high school. And I was a sophomore when he was a senior, and we couldn't believe he wasn't drafted. So he went on to Kasumnas River College and wound up setting records up and down the state. He was killing it. And he wasn't drafted again, and we could not figure out what the heck these scouts were thinking. You had to be wondering what was going on too, huh? Oh, absolutely. I thought I was going to get drafted out of high school. It never happened. So as you said, I went to Kasumas River College. Again, it didn't happen after my second year. I thought it was going to happen, but it wasn't until Ronnie King, who wound up signing both of us, he drafted my brother in the ninth round and came over to, to sign him. And that's when mom asked Ronnie King, hey, what's going on with David? Why wasn't he drafted? He just happened to be going to a workout in the Bay Area the very next day. He invited me to go to that, and he signed me right out of the workout. So I mean, that that, is really crazy. This really happened. I mean, my mom, the effervescent Italian mother that she was, he says it nicely. I'll tell you what really happened (laughs) is she lit into this guy. It's like, why could you take this boy and not this one? David's better than Steven. Are you not watching? She was just into this. And the next day, you know, it was all over. He goes to the tryout camp and signs him on the spot. The thing was, I was already in Canada at the Heidelberg Inn in Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada. I was there two days, and there was a knock at the door. And I opened the door, and it's my brother with his suitcases packed. And I said, what in the world are you doing here? And he goes, well, like the story. Mom got into that scout so bad, he forced him to take me to a tryout camp. It was almost like my mom reduced this scout to a fuller brush man outside of Dubuque, Iowa. It was like, uh, we're really sorry, Mr. Sachs. We hadn't seen him that much. We hadn't seen David that much. And she's like, oh, yeah, you've seen him. So give him a shot. So he does, and my brother naturally impressed him. And he played 15 years, including in the big leagues. So I wonder who the better scout was here, mom or, you know, the Dodger guy. So that's kind of how my brother got into baseball Absolutely. and then eventually into the major leagues as well. So what about the minor leagues? What did you gain from the minor leagues? Oh, just besides all the traveling and all the, you know, the different guys that we played with throughout the minor leagues, I wouldn't trade that experience for no, anything. I gained a ton of perspective. Oh, I, I, I mean, perspective. You gain that against everything else, what people are going through. And I, to me, baseball was a mirror of life because you have to deal with, you know, travel, politics. You and I are both the same way as we don't kiss anybody's behind. Uh, we saw some of that going on, too, which we wouldn't do. Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you hear about these guys that have all the talent in the world and they never make it to the big leagues. And then you hear about the guys that barely got drafted or didn't get drafted like myself, and they wind up going to the big leagues. Yeah. So you see the, the work ethic and everything else involved that it takes to get to the big leagues. 
And by being in the minor leagues for so many years, I was there for 13 years, yeah. you see it all. And it makes you grow up fast, too, because we'd never been away from home. We built up a big, huge phone bill our first year. I think my phone bill was 1000 bucks in the first month when I was in Canada, which is huge money then. It's big money now for a phone bill. But I want you to tell one story when you talk about perspective and trying to climb your way up, some of the things you have to go through. Maybe share a little bit about what happened to you in Fort Myers, Florida. This is a pretty shocking thing. Tell them oh, what yeah. happened. That's, so after the game, forget who I was with, but we went and got some to eat. We're coming back to the hotel after the game. It was late, walking on the side of the street, but 20 feet off the highway. And I hear something whiz by my head and didn't think anything of it. And within the next second or two, my watch is knocked off my wrist. So somebody exploded had, on your wrist, exploded on my wrist, knocked it off. And somebody drove by. They had either a pellet gun or some kind of pumped up BB gun. I don't think it was any kind of a 22 or any higher caliber than that. But it definitely could have poked an eye out or maybe even killed me because I don't know exactly what it was. But that is a crazy thing, right? You're just going to get something to eat after a game down at the Denny's and somebody you yeah. know, wants to shoot you. That's some of the things that you see in the minor leagues, not to drastic events like that, but you see things like how people struggle. Yeah. And, you know, there's not much money. I think our meal money, our first year in the big leagues was like four bucks for the first day. You're talking $4 to eat, and these are growing boys that consume a ton of calories. I don't know how the heck we did it. Well, and you mentioned that your your phone bill in Lethbridge, Canada for the first month was $1,000 for the month. We were only making $500 a month in our first year. So. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Let me give you a little perspective in the minor leagues. My first year, my brother and I made the same money. We never argued our contract. We just sent it back because we wanted to play. We wanted to stay in good standing with the Dodgers. Our first year, and this is only why you're playing now, it's not in the offseason. you got to go get a job in the offseason. The first year, we made 500 bucks a month, only when we played. So we made a, th a total of 1000 bucks our first right. year. It was only two months. The next year, we made $650 a month, big jump in pay. <laughs> the next year, our third year in pro ball, we made $800 a month. And then after that, I got in the big league roster. I started making more money. But yours went up incrementally. But it wasn't a ton of money. No. I think yours went up when you were in double A. So I think you were making like 1700 a month. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was making about 1000 a month. So shared a room with like three different guys. And that's just what you do when you're in the minor leagues. It takes a group of guys to be able to afford the rent for an apartment. Yeah. yeah and there's so many heart-wrenching things that happen, too, is – we came home our first year in rookie ball because my dad was sick and had to have open heart surgery. So my brother and I got a call to come back. Oddly enough, in 1983, when my brother was on the team with me, we had a flight from Atlanta to Cincinnati. In the middle of the night, we land. We're at the hotel. At a quarter to six, I got a call. It said, Tommy Lasorda wants us to come to his room. And I, I opened the door and go to the elevator. I thought I was getting traded or something because I was right in the middle of those throwing woes. This was a terrible year. And I opened the elevator, and it was my brother. We looked at each other, and we just said, at the same time, we just said, it's Dad. We knew it. So we get in the elevator, we go to Tommy's room, and he was in there, and he was crying. We had another teammate in there, Greg Brock. Everybody was in tears, and he, Tommy Lasorda told us, he said, you know, this is the hardest thing I have to do, but I have to tell you boys lost your father. And so it's kind of, again, the perspective thing that you see. In some ways small, some ways big, that you have to go through in the minor leagues. It's not just all baseball. People think, they look at baseball players, they think those guys are stacked, their lives are so easy. Most baseball players are poor. They hitchhike rides like I did, like my brother did. They walk places. They don't have wheels. And they lose family members when they're playing. And it's, uh, it was tough. Wasn't it that one uh, of the toughest times of your life? Definitely. Going, playing through the minor leagues, especially for a long period of time, like you said, there's not a lot of money. you got to 
you got to scrap. So it's not an easy journey for the most part. Yeah. And on the other side of that, when you have some tough things, we saw some crazy funny things too. We had some characters in our minor leagues that I guarantee you we couldn't make up. If you saw some of the excuses we heard in baseball, like my arm sore, or somebody says, I can't play because I slept on my eye wrong. <laughs> I mean, there was there was excuses that went from north to south, and we, we saw all of them. Tell them about Frank Bryant. This is a high draft choice by the Dodgers. I hope Frank's listening right now. I want him to hear a story. This is, this is a good one. Go ahead, David. Uh, you being a catcher and and Frank is a pitcher. I'll set you well, up. Well, as you said, Frank was a high draft pick. I think it was, what, 1979? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, he shows up, and he's got this great arm. I mean, he had he's 95-plus, and he's got movement, and he's got everything it takes. Now, you uh, being a catcher, you can see all oh, this yeah. right out of the boat. Right I, I see this guy's got talent. But I don't know. It just took a lot to get him on the mound. His arm, he had a lot of arm problems. Yeah. (laughs) And so he would have these workout sessions in between his injuries after he's been on the disabled list for a couple of weeks. Now he's trying to get back and get in the rotation. So he'd come down for a workout, and he would have Hall of Fame stuff in the bullpen. But at the end of the bullpen session, he'd say, I can't go, coach. My arm's sore. (laughs) (laughs) He wouldn't play. I just thought, wow, if his arm's sore with that kind of stuff, What's it going to be like when it's not sore? Yeah, it's, it's crazy. So we heard all those different kind of reasons why people were kind of afraid to fail. We've talked about that on some of the podcasts before. The I'm afraid to fail thing is something that people don't want to mention. But we saw it big time. So we, we saw guys who were high draft choices that never made it out of A-ball. And most of the reasons why, culturally, a lot of these guys weren't ready to leave home. They missed their girlfriends. They missed their mom or whatever it may be. And the other way is they just weren't ready to face the fact that they came from a place in high school or college where they were the best player in the area. There was nobody close to them. They come to the minor leagues now, and they're going against guys that were the best in their areas too. They never faced failure. They didn't know what it was like to fail, but mostly they didn't know how to fix it when they did fail. And that's where you weeded out some of these guys. So it wasn't just talent. It was culture. And when people ask me what was it besides all the talent, I point to right here in the chest, and I point to the cojones, too, because you got to have both. You, you need to have both of those. Perseverance, absolutely. Our number one draft pick our first year, 1978, guy had a, one of the prettiest swings I've ever seen. He Clay had Smith. a lot of talent. Hmm? But he came to Lethbridge, and I think he was only there a couple weeks, and he left because he missed his girlfriend. I think he did that twice yes. during that season, mm-hmm. and he just never—I don't think he really put everything into it that he needed to to make it all the way to the top, because he certainly had the tools to do it, but— I don't think he had the heart to get all the way to the top. Yeah, and it's not only that. It's sometimes you have to deal with obstacles with some of the people that are in the higher-ups. We had coaches and managers. Some of our managers would be on the bus, and these guys were drinking from the time they got on the bus until the next morning. Some of them didn't even know what time the bus was, and they were the managers of the team. We had guys that were taking shots during the game. I remember seeing one of our managers do that. And these were supposed to be examples for us, you know? But you saw the gamut. I mean, we ran the gamut as far as the things that we had to face in the minor leagues. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was great experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything. We'll be right back with this family bonding moment right after I share this message from one of the people who make this podcast possible, Sarsen Funds. Family is important, and right up there with family are good financial decisions. One of the more popular financial investments in the market today is cryptocurrency and blockchain. You've heard a lot about it. Bitcoin and others make the news on a regular basis. But it's a new currency and a new process that many of us don't really know or understand. And that's where Sarsen funds come in. 
They build your confidence with knowledge of the investment. They're a leading educator for financial advisors and consumers. I know. I personally have investments with Sarsen. They have a passion for cryptocurrency with a team that boasts a wealth of knowledge in the industry. More importantly, they have the resources to help us, you and me, learn about this new and exciting investment opportunity, like Cryptocurrency 101. It's yours by simply visiting the website and clicking on Education and Marketing. If you want to learn more, if you're looking to get a high-level Wall Street-grade understanding of cryptocurrency and blockchain, visit sarsenfunds.com. They've helped me understand why this is a great investment tool and to better understand what it's all about. Sarsen Funds. Real. Clear. Crypto. You know, sometimes it's tough to get motivated when you're working on your own. Happens to me when I've got nobody to bounce ideas off or share thoughts. That's why there's general provision. It's more than a collaborative workspace. It's a club. It's a community of like-minded people, anti-office a private work club for founders, makers, and creators. You can join the remote work club for virtual, on-demand, and mailed offerings by visiting generalprovision.com. Check it out. And back now with former Dodger and Red Sox player and my brother, David Sachs. So when you talk about perseverance, and that's what we did one of our shorts on the other day, is being able to stick with it, having the great attitude and the intestinal fortitude to not give up. And I don't think there's a better example than what my brother went through. 13 years in the minor leagues, and I was fortunate to play in the big leagues most of my career. And people say, did you guys have some animosity? Because my brother only played a few years in the big leagues, and he played most of his time in the minor leagues. And our answer is always the same. You can put us in two different rooms and ask us questions about an array of things across the board. And while our personalities might seem different, our answers will be exactly the same, I'll guarantee you. And we will say the same thing on this thing. Is My brother and I were each other's biggest fans. I can remember when he was in AAA in Columbus, and I was with the Yankees. We are in the Yankee organization together. He'd have a game, and he would go somewhere and try to find a bar after the game where they had the TV or they were covering the Yankee game so he could watch my game at night. And then after the game, I would call him and ask him, hey, what do you think? What am I doing? And I'd call him for advice. My brother and I were always each other's biggest fans. The fact that we played baseball and, and whatnot, that's so secondary. Our family is the most important thing, and I benefited so much from having him as my brother because I was able to bounce everything off him, and I know I'm going to get the right answer. I'm going to get the true answer, somebody that I can really trust. And he knows the game as good as anybody, especially being a catcher. Those guys are like the generals on the field, right? That's what he did. What did you think about that when you hear that question about us playing ball? Yeah, absolutely. There was never any animosity. There was always a lot of support, and for playing 13 years in the minors, looking back, I just feel very fortunate that you're there and always supporting me and just rooting for me to get to the big leagues. And when you're in AAA for, I think I was in AAA for about nine or 10 of those years, you're always either a trade away or an injury away. Anything could happen. You're just right there. You're the next call up. So yeah. I always kept that in mind and always was hoping to get there one way or the other. I remember there was a play in Atlanta when I was going through that throwing issue and there was a, there was a ball that was hit over my head. And there was a guy in first base. I had to sprint out to right field. You remember that play? Oh, that's one of the best plays I ever saw you make. <laughs> Thanks. And I, I caught the ball and, and then turned around and threw the guy out at first to end the game. So while getting some of that bad rap about throwing the ball that was just two months of my career, I came back in the dugout. And I remember my brother said, man, I think you put all that to rest because that was, that was a really good play that maybe people will shut up about it now. Those kind of things you can't share with just a teammate, but my brother can come up and say that to me because we've been through it our whole lives. So that was the benefit of having a brother on your team. It was, it was yeah. fantastic. 
And I don't know if you ever uh, could remember, Stephen, but remember the guy that sat right behind the dugout in Atlanta? And he had that arm apparatus oh, that would twirl around yes. real fast, and yes. he was like just egging you on the whole yeah. game. The guy had a contraption he made yeah. up. It was like an arm. I would come up to bat. He would pull this thing, and the arm would flap around everywhere. And the whole stadium thought it was hilarious. Oh, I mean, yeah. it was bugging the heck out of me, and it was getting to me, but I couldn't show it. So, Yeah, they all thought it was hilarious until you made that play to end the game, and all of a sudden that apparatus disappeared. And <laughs> the crowd got really silent. I remember that vividly. Yeah, that was a fun time. And so, yeah, third. 13 years in the minors, what it says, it says a lot about what we're talking about in here and how you can persevere and how you can get through things. And when things seem bleak, you just can't give it up, man, because when you're close like that, anything can happen. Yeah. And you don't know what the front office is thinking. You don't know what other teams are thinking. There could be a trade in the background that you have no idea that is going on. So you just always have to try to keep in mind to go out there and do your job, play your best at all times, no matter how bleak it looks and hope that something happens. And yeah. so that was my mindset for those all those years in the minor leagues. Now, you talk about perseverance. How about what the offseason was like? You played five years of winter ball. I played one year of winter ball, and I couldn't stand it. I was down in Venezuela, and it was the scariest damn part of my life. I saw some scary things down there. I saw people getting dragged out of trucks and getting beaten. I saw on the front page of the Venezuelan newspaper a picture of a guy walking down the street holding three human heads in his hand as he walked down the street. It was so challenging when you talk about a cultural experience. You did that for five years. How in the world did you go through that? Well, again, that's part of the perseverance that we've been talking about. I always felt that uh, the more experience that I could get going down there and playing, and that was a good caliber of baseball. There was a lot of guys that were like myself on the fringe of being in the big leagues. I always felt it was going to benefit me. And so, yeah, one of the years I went there right after we got married uh, my wife and I, we got married, and a week later we were in Dominican Republic. We were there all winter. We missed Christmas. We had a daughter, and for three months we were down there, and that was quite a culture shock. But I don't regret it. It was a great experience, and just like going to Venezuela, Puerto Rico for two years, and Mexico also. And when you talk about your support system, your wife, Patsy, man, you talk about somebody who's been through the trenches. I remember when you got traded to Buffalo and play, when you got traded to Pittsburgh, she drove from Oklahoma City, I believe, to Buffalo with yeah, the I U-Haul, and she was pregnant. And, and you know, that's a trooper right there. She's yeah. been through all the minor leagues with him. She has gone through every trench that he had to go through to be successful. Yeah. So she's been a big help. Yeah, absolutely. The first 10 years of our marriage, I was playing minor league ball and major league ball a little bit, but she was always supportive. You know, we started with one child, and by the time we were done, we, were, we had three kids. So that's, that's a little bit challenging to move kids in and out of school. We had a home here in Sacramento, and then, of course, you have your apartment or wherever you're going to stay on the road. So she was always there. She was, she was great. She still is. So I just look back at this, and I just think, man, two guys that started out playing with a tennis ball on a farm— outside of Sacramento that went to a very little school in high school, and we just followed our dream, man. We followed what we loved to do, and I think it's probably not a lot unlike what you are doing out there. If you follow what you really like to do, if you love what you're doing, chances are you're going to be pretty good at it. Yeah, and don't forget, when it was all said and done, you came away with two World Series rings, which is very rare, and I also have an American League Championship ring, so I feel very blessed, very fortunate to have that. Good point. I mean, who gets to get to the points that we did? We never knew this was going to happen when we were little kids. We just did it because we loved it, right? People we say dreamed we about it. Yeah. But... You put out all that effort when you were young, but to us, we weren't working. Did you feel no, like you were working? No, then? no. That was like a joy to go out and play baseball every day. We looked forward to it. 
We talked about it at night. We couldn't wait till the morning. And uh, that's what we did. We just had that kind of a passion where that's, that's what we wanted to do all day. Looking at this thing and going full circle with it, here's what I take away from this. When your talent is dwarfed by your passion and work ethic, somebody's dream is about to come true. Some big things are going to happen. I wanted to thank my brother for today. Dave, thanks for coming on and lending all your stories, and it was a great time. This is like a dream come true. I can do what I want to do and have my brother join me with it. I think it's great, and hopefully you listeners can kind of gain a perspective of where my brother and I came from or how it can happen. If it happened to us, it can happen for you, and I think the key here is got to follow that emotional heart. That's one of the sayings we have here on the podcast. It means everything. If you love what you're doing, chances are you're going to be pretty good at it. So again, thanks for coming on, David. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today, please give us a positive review, subscribe, and share the program. Also, be sure to listen to my Sacks in the Morning shorts three days a week for a couple of minutes of uplifting suggestions to get your day off to a great start. Our music is performed by my adorable niece, Elena Jane. And remember, to reach your goals and your dreams, follow your emotional heart. Today's podcast was brought to you by General Provision and Sarsen Funds. Sarsen Funds, real, clear, crypto.